Amen. All right, let's open up our Bibles, 2 Samuel chapter 18. If you're visiting, uh, we are going through 2 Samuel. So we went all the way through 1 Samuel. We took a break this past summer, so over a year ago, almost a year ago, uh, and we went through James, and then we picked up at 2 Samuel. So uh, we are working our way through 2 Samuel, and we are at chapter 18 today. And we're going to go actually through chapter 19, verse 8. So we're going to do all of chapter 18, and we're going to do part of chapter 19 this morning. We'll read it as we go. Uh, I don't know about you, but I do not like when things are complicated. It's frustrating. Uh, How many people have ever bought like a gift, and you had to assemble the gift, and it was like you needed a degree to assemble whatever the gift was, or maybe it was a piece of furniture, and it's just, it's so frustrating. I, I just want them to simply put, you know, press one, two, three, four, boom, it's installed, easy to go. That's what we like. You, you don't like complicated. This past week, I got to the gas station at Costco, and I went to press my fuel tank button so that the lid would pop out. Did not pop out. Something went wrong with my door. So I spent the next 20 minutes searching online how to get, and it was so complicated, and I would get out, and I would look, and I was like, well, my van doesn't have that, and then I would go back in, and eventually, almost a half hour later at the gas station, I was able to get the fuel latch lid door open. It was so complicated. I think in life, we often complicate. We, we put too much on our plate. We don't say no, and it, we'll have a week where it's like, I don't even know how I'm going to make it to the end of the week because things are so complicated. You see, life is far more difficult when we complicate things. It stresses us. Uh, we want simple. We want straightforward. We want smooth sailing. Let's be honest. None of us likes complicated. Well, as we look at chapter 18 of 2 Samuel, what we're going to be uh, confronted with and reminded is that sin complicates life. Say it with me. Sin complicates life. It creates a messiness that is quite difficult to overcome. But with Jesus, there's still hope because he's conquered sin through the cross. So we're going to look at sin's complication this morning as we unpack chapter 18 and into chapter 19. We're going to see uh, sin and how messy it makes life in four ways in our passage today as we see it reach into David's world. First of all, we're going to see sin's complication through suspect leadership. David's leadership is not going to be all that it can be because of sin. Because of his past sins, present sins, we're going to see the foolishness that he leads God's people by. Secondly, we're going to see uh, sin's complication through serious judgment. There is consequences because of sin that unfold in our passage today, namely David losing his son. Third, we're going to see uh, sin's complication through a sad loss. We're going to see heartache experienced by David. And then finally, we're going to see sin's complication through a stern rebuke, and Joab is going to give David the tough love that he really needs to hear in today's passage. So let's begin as we look at sin's complication through suspect leadership. 
Now, if you recall last week when we looked at chapter 17, kind of that central theme that we picked up from it was that God's plans don't fail. When do God's plans fail? Never. But part of his plan, if you remember, chapter 17, you can look up real quick at verse 14. This was part of God's plan, okay? It says, For the Lord had ordained to defeat the good counsel of Ahithophel so that the Lord might bring harm upon Absalom. So part of God's plan, and we're going to see it unfold right here in chapter 18, is to bring harm to Absalom. We're going to see this in today's passage. So let's begin. Let's read verses 1 to 8 together of chapter 18. It says, Then David mustered the men who were with him and set over them commanders of thousands and commanders of hundreds. And David sent out the army one-third under the command of Joab, one-third under the command of Abishah, the son of Zeruah, Joab's brother, and one-third under the command of Ittai, the Gittite. And the king said to the men, I myself will also go out with you. But the men said, You shall not go out. For if we flee, they will not care about us. If half of us die, they will not care about us. But you are worth 10,000 of us. Therefore, it is better that you send us help from the city. The king said to them, Whatever seems best to you, I will do. So the king stood at the side of the gate while all the army marched out by hundreds and by thousands. And the king ordered Joab and Abishah and Ittai, Deal gently for my sake with the young man Absalom. And all the people heard when the king gave orders to all the commanders about Absalom. So the army went out into the field against Israel, and the battle was fought in the forest of Ephraim. And the men of Israel were defeated there by the servants of David, and the loss there was great on that day, 20,000 men. The battle spread over the face of all the country, and the forest devoured more people that day than the sword. Notice the dangerous circumstances that David finds himself in. I think it's vital to understand this context. Now, you remember last week when we saw that God's plans don't fail, Absalom had two choices, you remember? Plan A. Plan A was probably the better plan. It was the safer plan. It was the quicker plan. Probably likely the most successful plan. Plan A was that Hithophel was going to take a group of 12,000 men, immediately pursue David, catch David off guard, try to make very minimal collateral damage, just kill David, bring everybody else back like a bride to her husband, and all is well, we move on to life without David. That was plan A. But something about plan A did not go well with Absalom, and we don't know this 100% sure, but we can kind of deduce from everything. Plan A was missing a vital component, and it was the glory of Absalom. He didn't like it. So he said, hey, Hushai, what do you think? And Hushai, trying to save David's life, says, actually, his plan's not good. Here's a better plan. The better plan is you're going to go out and lead the people. And also, when we go out there, you're going to kill everybody. Not one single person is going to be left, including David. We want to wipe out all your enemies so there's nothing there. And that is the plan that Absalom said, that's a good plan. That's what he's doing. We need to understand context-wise what David is facing. 
2 Samuel 17, 11 says, We shall come upon him in some place where he is to be found, and of him and all the men with him, not one will be left. Now it's true, David had a formidable army. It wasn't a complete mismatch. David had his mighty men, but he was still outnumbered, and he was certainly not prepared for what would have happened if they would have went with plan A. But his leaders knew now at this battle that David was at risk. So he says, what? We do not want to put you out in the battle. You're too valuable. You're the one they want more than anybody, so we're going to hold you back. So what we need to start seeing is how dangerous the context is for David and his men, because it's important as we look at the danger, what David asks is beyond comprehension, okay? It's really the difference in, in the summer months when we have a tornado watch versus a tornado warning. So a tornado watch means the weather conditions are in place that it is a possibility that a tornado could come out of nowhere and happen. A tornado warning is it is imminent. Get yourself in some safe shelter area and it's, it's coming. It, it is happening. And we need to understand David, they were in a warning, not a watch. Do you understand this? Do you understand these dangerous circumstances, the consequences of sin that led to this, the impact that David's sin is impacting on lots of people? Because not only do we see the dangerous circumstances, we see David's concern. Did you see what he asked? In the midst of all of this, he says, deal gently with Absalom, with the boy Absalom. Let's translate that. What is he saying? Do not kill Absalom. Is what he's saying. Don't kill him. Do you understand how inappropriate that is? I mean, could you imagine you got a family member, not immediate, but like kind of next level. You go to the funeral. You're at the showing. You go up. You hug the family grieving alongside of him, and then you say, hey, what are you guys going to do with his car? Have you thought about, like, hey, his apartment, is it open? Is there a way that I could sublease it? Like, how inappropriate would that be in the context? I mean, those are like faux pas. You would never ask such a ridiculous comment. Do you understand how absurd it is that David is saying, hey, this man who's going to come and wants to wipe out everyone, he wants all of you dead, could you please play nicely with him and not kill him? How absurd that is. Because here is the issue in all of this, and this is once again a failure on David's part. What was David's responsibility as king? He had two main jobs, if you recall. 1 Samuel 10.1, we repeat these all the time. You shall reign over the people of the Lord. You will save them from the hand of their enemies. So you rule and reign and you protect. And David, the protector, is more concerned about his son who is coming to kill him than his own people. And I think what we see in all of this is, and let's, let's be candid, we need a better king. David's just not it. We need a better king. And I think also, for being candid, you and I are often like David, foolish. 
and ridiculous. That sin blinds us. Sin, sin taints our vision. We don't know what we're doing. And then, do you notice in the midst of all of this, how short the mention of the battle was? Like, the actual battle, if you remember, verse 6 to 8. Boom. Happened. Israel uh, lost to Judah. Boom. Done. Next. I mean, it's funny when you look, you could do a Bible study on this, how often the battles of the Lord are like two verses, one verse. Because at the end of the day, who's winning the battle? God. God's winning the battle. Like, it's, it's, it's a foregone conclusion. God had ordained harm to happen to Absalom. The battle had already been won. It was just a matter of playing itself out. But do you see how often sin blinds you? How often have you found yourself in a foolish middle ground thinking that you could do one thing or not the other? Like do both. It's, that's the problem with sin. It complicates things. David is not seeing clearly. David is not thinking clearly. David is not leading rightly. And that's what happens with sin. You cannot be friends with sin and then also do everything else rightly. So we see sin's complication through suspect leadership, these dangerous circumstances, David's concern. Let's now look at it through serious judgment. The horrible outcome of sin and defiance of God, David's sin led to this. Read verse 9 with me. We'll go 9 to 15. And Absalom happened to meet the servants of David. Absalom was riding on his mule, and the mule went under the thick branches of a great oak, and his head caught fast in the oak, and he was suspended between the heavens and earth, while the mule that was under him went on. And a certain man saw it and told Joab, Behold, I saw Absalom hanging in an oak. Joab said to the man who told him, What, you saw him? Why then did you not to strike him there to the ground? I would have been glad to give you ten pieces of silver and a belt. But the man said to Joab, Even if I felt in my hand the weight of a thousand pieces of silver, I would not reach out my hand against the king's son. For in our hearing, the king commanded you and Abishah and Etai, for my sake, protect the young man, Absalom. On the other hand, if I had dealt treacherously against his life, and there is nothing hidden from the king, then you yourself would have stood aloof. Job said, I will not waste time like this with you. And he took three javelins in his hand. He thrust them into the heart of Absalom while he was still alive in the oak. And ten young men, Job's armor bearers, surrounded Absalom and struck him. And killed him. Notice, first of all, God's work in all of this. Notice how, it's, how it reads. And Absalom happened to meet the servants of David. As if it was like a coincidence. I mean, if you, we've had those moments. Maybe you're in a big city. Out of town. And then out of nowhere, you walk into this museum and you see somebody that you know from back home. Like, what are the chances, is what we say, that, that there's no chances. This was God's sovereign will. The fact that Absalom ended up doing what he did and, and ended up where he ended up is not a coincidence. We need to understand that. Proverbs 19.21 Many are the plans in the mind of a man, but it is the purpose of the Lord that will stand. You remember what we read in Scripture, that God numbers the days of our lives before one comes to pass. Well, the final day in Absalom's life that had been numbered was ending here. So I think it's important for us 
to grasp and to look at our own lives and to realize that there is no such thing as chance. That you're literally in this gymnasium in Perrysburg, Ohio on this day and in this moment because God wants you here for a reason. He might be dealing with some sin in your life, some truth he wants you to behold. Whatever the case is, this is not a coincidence, nor is what's going on with Absalom here. I mean, think of all the details. The fact that one, he's being chased, so he's on this mule. He's trying to get away. He happens to be in a forest that's really thick. So he goes under, and then he, he happens to hit the wrong part of a tree, and somehow maybe the branch catches him to where his neck's caught. What do we know about his hair? It's what? It's glorious, right? And thick. Somehow maybe the hair got stuck in the branches because he was doing an herbal essence commercial. Whatever the case is, he's stuck there by God's sovereign hand. And that guy catches him. And he's like, I'm not doing anything because I remember David said, don't touch him. Then Joab, God works, remember, in the hearts of man. What does Joab do? He ignores David's command, doesn't care, thrusts three javelins in him, and then they knock him down, and then they end up killing him. You understand that God is in the details. God works through sin. God works through sinners. God's not responsible or or guilty of sin, but he's at, at work here. But not only do we see God's work, we see God's wrath. Go to verse 16 with me. Then Joab blew the trumpet, and the troops came back from pursuing Israel. For Joab restrained them. And they took Absalom, they threw him into a great pit in the forest, and raised over him a very great heap of stones. And all Israel fled everyone to his own home. Now Absalom in his lifetime had taken and set up for himself the pillar that is in the king's valley. For he said, I have no son to keep my name in remembrance. He called the pillar after his own name, and it is called Absalom's monument to this day. Uh, We need to understand, even in those verses, there's some symbolism going on that God is judging Absalom. We're used to symbolism. I'm wearing this on my ring finger. What is this? This would be a wedding band. It is representative that I made a covenant before God and man to be married to my lovely wife, Abby. So it's symbolic. It's representative. We're going to be celebrating after the sermon. We're going to be celebrating communion. So when you hold that bread, it's symbolic of the bread of the body of Jesus being broken. As we drink of the juice, it's symbolic of the blood that was shed. When we look at these stones piled upon Joab, or not Joab, by Joab and the men upon Absalom's dead body, it is symbolic, it is representative that he is experiencing the wrath and condemnation of God. You can look later in Joshua chapter 7, if you remember the story of Achan. Achan stole from Jericho, the victory at Jericho. And he was not supposed to. And he was killed at Joshua 7.25. They raised over him a great heap of stones that remains to this day. You could even argue, too, there's another aspect of, of judgment representative in here. Is he hangs from a what? A tree. Do we know a little bit about the importance of hanging from a tree? Galatians 3.13. Cursed is everyone who is hung on a tree. So the end of the day, when we look at Absalom, we see God judging Absalom. He's judging him for his sin, his disobedience, his defiance. We were having life group last night, and somebody asked a question. It's a good point. At no point do we ever see Absalom seek God. 
At no point do we see him ever, because David's next son, Solomon, there's going to be, a, he's, he's a mess too, just like dad, but he at least seeks the Lord, he seeks for wisdom, all of those things. Well, do you believe that God judges people? Do you believe that hell is real? Do you believe that there's a need for Christ? I mean, what we see happen in Absalom is a wake-up call. It is a reminder that, friends, if you don't know Jesus, if you don't turn to Christ, wrath will eventually be poured out upon you. So we, as we're seeing this, I mean, sin is, sin is messy, isn't it? We see it through the suspect leadership, dangerous circumstances, David's concern. We see it through the serious judgment, God's at work, but also God's wrath. Now we see David suffering a great loss. Read verse 19, through the sad loss. Then Ahimamaz, Ahimamaz, the son of Zadok said, let me run and carry news to the king that the Lord had delivered him from the hand of his enemies. And Joab said to them, you are not to carry news today. You may carry news another day, but today you shall carry no news because the king's son is dead. Then Joab said to the Cushite, go tell the king what you have seen. The Cushite bowed before Joab and ran. Then Ahimeaz, the son of Zadok, said again to Joab, come what may, let me also run after the Cushite. And Joab said, why will you not run, my son, seeing that you will not have no reward for the news? Come what may, said, I will run. So he said to him, run. Then Ahimeaz ran by the way of the plain and outran the Cushite. Now David was sitting between the two gates and the watchman went up to the roof of the gate by the wall. And when he lifted up his eyes and looked, he saw a man running alone. The watchman called out and told the king. And the king says, if he is alone, there's news in his mouth. And he drew nearer and nearer. And the watchman said, another man running. Saw another man running. And the watchman called to the gate and said, see another man running alone. The king said, he also brings news. The watchman said, I think the running of the first is like the running of Himeaz, the son of Zadok. And the king said, he is a good man and comes with good news. Then Ahimeaz cried out to the king, all is well. And he bowed before the king with his face to the earth and said, Blessed be the Lord your God, who has delivered you up from the men who raised their hand against my lord the king. And the king says, this is well with the young man Absalom. Ahimeaz answered, when Joab sent the king's servant, your servant, I saw a great commotion, but I do not know what it was. And the king said, turn aside and stand there. So he turned aside and stood still. Notice that David has a reason to celebrate. And that's why Ahimeaz really wants to be the bearer of this good news that God has delivered. Has anybody ever uh, had good news that you shared with them, and they shared the good news before you got to share the good news? Rest my, 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 my long-gone grandma, Helen, she was the worst at that. Uh, she was. She was so bad. So like one of our pregnancies, she knew, like nobody knew it was an early pregnancy. And then all of a sudden she came on a Sunday morning to church. I think Kathy Woods was one of the people she talked to. She's like, yeah, Joe and Abby, they're pregnant. And like nobody knew, like even some of my f closest friends didn't know. And she's telling everybody like that's kind of, he's excited because Why? The Lord had been faithful. The Lord had given them 
victory. Psalm 9, David says this later. Not related to this, but listen to what David said. I will give thanks to the Lord of my whole heart. I will recount all your wonderful deeds. He just wants to celebrate. He wants to tell David, hey, you won. The battle is over. Rejoice. Be excited for what God has done. But what does Joab know? Joab knows that David is not going to take the news well. Because in the midst of the victory, in the in midst of the success, he also lost his son. That's why he sends the Cushite. The Cushite kind of minimizes the blow because Ahimeaz has been the person that's been the go-to sharing everything. This Cushite is he's a no-name person. It's like hiring a messenger to come and just say, hey, this is what happened. But he has reason to celebrate. Friends, are you a celebrator of what God has done in your life? Are you quick to celebrate God's blessing? Because this is the problem. David doesn't celebrate what God has done. He's going to mope and, and be bothered by what God didn't do, not saving his son. But he has a reason to celebrate. And I think all of us here who follow Jesus Christ, who know the Lord, no matter what is going on in your life today, you have a reason to celebrate. Do you understand that? Cancer, still have a reason to celebrate. Problems in your marriage, reason to celebrate. Financial difficulties, work problems, whatever it is, you have a reason to celebrate because you stand right before God. That you have a, a, an eternal home waiting you. His spirit is living and dwelling inside of you. And, and I think what we have a tendency, and I know myself, is I am very narrow-minded, very narrow-focused. And when my circumstances are not up to my standards, my expectations, my what I would like, I'm Eeyore. I am. I'm just, I'm whiny. Woe is me. And friends, that shouldn't be the case. We should celebrate what he has accomplished. But not only does he have a reason to celebrate, he refuses to celebrate. Continue reading verse 31 with me. And behold, the Cushite came, and the Cushite said, Good news for my lord, the king, for the Lord has delivered you this day from the hand of all who rose up against you. The king said to the Cushite, Is it well with the young man Absalom? And the Cushite said, May the enemies of my lord, the king, and all who rise up against you for evil be like that young man. Translation, he's dead. And the king was deeply moved, and he went up to the chamber over the gate and wept. And as he went, he said, Oh, my son Absalom, Oh, my son, my son, Absalom, would I have died instead of you? Oh, Absalom, my son, my son. This is messy, isn't it? The Cushite, matter of fact, says Absalom's dead, and then instant, he's grieving, he's tearing. And I think we need to give David the benefit of the doubt. He just lost his son. I mean, I, I can't imagine dealing with that kind of loss. Of, of, I mean, we always say it like in the ideal world from our mind, you never have to bury your kid. Like hopefully they have to bury you, but hopefully it's way down the road where you get to experience a life with them. And, and David loses that. And I think probably the biggest problem in why David is so grieved is because David realizes part of the reason he is dead is himself. 
I mean, Super Bowl was real recent. There was a pass interference call at the end of the game. And it was a very suspect call. Guy grabbed a person. And, you know, if they don't call that, maybe they don't lose the game. And you'll never know. And the, the guy who made the mistake, he acknowledged it was a mistake on my part. And, and he's owned it. But I, I think on a, we're not talking about a football game, right? We're talking about his, his son, and he, he's taking responsibility that it was my fault. How was it David's fault? I mean, did, did, did David make Absalom defy God and pursue the throne? No. But David committed adultery with Bathsheba, had her husband murdered, and when God rebuked him months later, what did he tell him? The sword will never depart from this house. And this is where we see it playing itself out. So it's David's fault. He's responsible. Do you own your sin? Do you take responsibility? Is it wrong to grieve? It's not. I mean, David, the problem was, what, the ideal response with David would have been celebration for the victory, while at the same time being able, at least even in a private sense, mourning and grieving the loss of his kid. But then notice the one thing he does say, because I think there's some gospel in there for us to think about. He looks at Absalom and says, would I have died instead of you, O Absalom, my son, my son? Wishful thinking, man, if I could have, I would have took your place. But here's the gospel. God doesn't wishfully think that. Isn't that good news for us? He says, man, I, I, I wish I could take your place. He's like, no, my son took your place so that I could be with you. Do you see our need for that substitute? We were debating, Andy and I, because we've been doing about a chapter a week. So we debated, like, do we end at 18 and just kind of like... Or do we kind of start into 19? Well, we decided 19, so I, I want to go there. So we see sin's complication through suspect leadership, serious judgment, sad loss, and lastly, through a stern rebuke. Read verse 19 with, chapter 19, verse 1. It was told Joab, behold, the king is weeping and mourning for Absalom. So the victory that day was turned into mourning for all the people for the people heard that day, the king is grieving for his son, and the people stole into the city that day as people steal and who are ashamed when they flee in battle. The king covered his face, and the king cried with a loud voice, Oh, my son, Absalom, oh, Absalom, my son, my son. Then Joab came into the house of the king and said, You have today covered with shame the faces of all your servants who have this day saved your life and the lives of your sons and your daughters and the lives of your wives and your concubines because you love those who hate you and hate those who love you. For you have made it clear today that commanders and servants are nothing to you. For today I know that if Absalom were alive and all of us were dead today, then you would be pleased. Now therefore arise, go out and speak kindly to your servants. For I swear by the Lord that if you do not go, not a man will stay with you this night and this will be worse for you than all the evil that had come upon you from your youth until now. Then the king arose, he took his seat in the gate and the people were all told, behold, the king is sitting in the gate and all the people came before the king. First of all, in this stern rebuke, he is told to realize his wrong. 
We need to understand, David has prolonged the public nature of grief. That's the issue. It's not behind closed doors. He's really mourning, man, I lost my son. No, it is nonstop, public in nature. There's no celebration that God had delivered them. Doesn't mean his heart can't hurt for his Lord, but as a leader, he is failing miserably as king. He's making people feel bad. He's giving them a guilt trip. Yesterday, a guy tried to give me a guilt trip, and I wasn't buying. I coached fourth grade basketball at Toledo Christian. We have two teams. Game started. We scored two points. Instantly, their coach runs out on the court, talks to the ref with his back to me, and he's like whispering stuff. And then the ref comes over to me, and and he's like, Apparently one of your kids can't play because he's on a different team. From the very beginning of our season, we were allowed to— I have 14 kids. That's a lot of kids on a basketball team. So we split our team into two teams, but we rotate who's on the team each week. We try to balance it, uh, give everybody a chance to play with their friends. And, that, and he's like arguing with me. It's, it's not the policy. And I'm like, it is the policy. And he's like throwing a fit. So I have to go into the next gym. I grab the commissioner of the league. He comes down. He has to talk with him. Still fighting and arguing. Just he's angry. He, he's yelling at me. This is not fair. Blah, 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 blah. So we played the game. We won 39 to 0. He was not happy at the end of the game. I promise, in all defense of you, I did not try to run up the score. In all fairness, I think we could have scored 60. I did try to not let them score, though. So in that regard, I did tell one kid, under no circumstance does your guy guard, does the guy score. But I was a little petty because of the coach, and I, I confess before you, it was wrong. But you understand, like, that guilt trip idea, because after the game, we shook hands, and he's like, that you, did you enjoy that? And I'm like, a little, but, like, I didn't say that. Um, <laughs> David, think about this. This is serious, though. His men, 20,000 people died that day, which means some of those were David's men. People lost their brother, their sister, or whoever it was. People died that day, and David is angry and upset because his son, who was wicked, his son, who was defying God, died that day. And Joab had the courage, Joab had the audacity to rebuke the king. First Timothy 15. 520, it says, as for those who persist in sin, rebuke them in the presence of all so that the rest may stand in fear. He's really another Nathan to David. Well, do you have those kind of people in your life that you will be willing to to be called out by? Are you blind to sin? Now, let's be honest. We don't want those people in our lives because it's uncomfortable, it's painful, but you need those people. But not only does he tell him to realize his wrong, he tells him to repent of his wrong. Some people suffer from night terrors. When a night terror is like a, you wake up, but you're kind of woken up, and maybe you're screaming, you're just having difficulties, and the only way, you really have to kind of wake them, wake them up for them to get out of this kind of a night terror. And I think David, he's so lost in his grief that Joab has to awaken him with some very harsh words. 
He tells him, if you don't, everybody's going to abandon you, David. Because what you're basically saying is your son who wanted to kill you is far more important than all these people who are willing to die on behalf of you. You need to repent. You need to repent. Acts 3.19, repent then and turn to God so that your sins may be wiped out, that times of refreshment come from the Lord. So not only do we need to confess and acknowledge our sin, you and I, we need to turn from it and go in the right way. And David, what does he do? Praise the Lord. David gets up and goes amongst his people. Instant repentance. He responds. David is teachable in that moment. And I want to ask us, are you and I, are we teachable in the moment? Do we respond to correction? Do we live a life of repentance? I have a what if moment to think about. Think of some defining moments in your life, some positive, some negative, that before that moment happened, somebody stopped you, somebody brought a camera, or like a, a TV, and they showed you a preview of what was going to happen based on the decision that you are going to make. Think about that. I mean, you end up with the gold medal, but it's gonna require these eight years of grueling work, and you realize, like, you know, it, 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 it seems like it's gonna be worth it, or even on the front end when you find out you're, you're pregnant and, and you're having a really difficult pregnancy, but then you get to see that baby nine months later, it just, it makes it worth it. But what about negative things? Those bad decisions you made where like you don't realize the half of what was going to happen as a result. What if David on that rooftop sees Bathsheba, inquires about Bathsheba, and in that moment there was a timeout and he was shown What was going to happen as a result of that? What if he would see that his son would be under a pile of stone and rubble because of what he did that moment? Do you think David would still do it? We'll never know. I mean, that's not a possibility. But I think what we do learn in all of that is sin never delivers what it promises. It does. I mean, some of us here are on the cusp of some big sins, potentially. Temptation has been wooing you in whatever capacity it is, and you're, you're thinking about it, and you, you're trying to fight it and resist it, but like sin is just, it's persistent, and it keeps enticing, and, and then you're like, well, maybe it won't be that bad. Maybe it'll be this, it'll be worth it. Friends, it is never worth it. If David was here right now, he would look back and say, why was I such a fool? Why did I do that? For, for some temporary pleasure with this woman resulted in my one son ended up killing my other son, my son dying. Like sin just got so complicated in the midst of all of it. So friends, wherever you're at, take heed to this warning. But I think also in the midst of this, it's not just a warning. 
It's an encouragement. Because you know what? In the midst of all this, guess who God is not done with? David. God's not done with David. He's still going to reign a lot after Absalom is passing. But I think even more importantly is there's a king coming, right? Because we saw in this man, we need a better king. Guess what? That king was coming. That king was going to come through the line of David. And he came. Turn to the gospel. Not, not literally, but turn to Matthew. And guess whose genealogy is central to the gospel of Matthew? Son of who? David. This is the king that he promised. This king not tainted by his own sins, who deals with sin for all time. His name is Jesus, and he is our hope. So yes, sin will never deliver what it, it promises, but God always delivers what he's promised in Jesus Christ. So no matter how complicated your life is today, God is not done with you. Let's pray. Father, we come before you right now and we acknowledge, Lord, that we make our lives a mess. We go rogue. We engage and indulge in sin. We do foolish things. And Lord, many a times there's great consequences. So we, we even thank you for that. We thank you, Lord, that we can learn from our foolishness, from our sin, but we, we also rejoice that you are a God who is not done with us, that in Christ there's forgiveness, there's grace, there's mercy. So we pray, God, that you would help us to learn from our sin and that we might live for you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, Luke 22 declares, when the hour came, Jesus and his apostles reclined at the table, and he said to them, I have eagerly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat of it again until it finds fulfillment in the kingdom of God. After taking the cup, he gave thanks and said, Take this and divide it amongst you. For I tell you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread, gave thanks, and broke it and gave it to them, saying, This body is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after the supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is a new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. But the hand of him who is going to betray me is with mine on the table. The Son of Man will go as it has been decreed, but woe to the man who betrays him. I think in light of celebrating communion, in light of us um, participating in the Lord's Supper, I think it's very important for us to uh, say a few words about communion, specifically in light of today's sermon. And I think what it's teaching us is kind of the twofold approach that sin is serious, that it was so serious it required to be dealt with. So as we drink of the cup and we eat of the bread, we're remembering that Jesus' body and blood, you know, body broken, blood shed. So we need to take sin seriously, that we need to not be a people who indulge in our sins. But also, and I think here's the celebratory nature of it, God's not done with us. That God is not finished with you. That God is a God who forgives. God is a God who redeems. Paul warns whoever eats to drink or drinks the cup in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sinning against the body and blood of the Lord. A man ought to examine himself before he eats of the bread and drinks of the cup. So I want to encourage you that 
if you are not a believer, please do not participate. Use this time to pray, to, to commune with God. Uh, if you are a believer and you are living in willful rebellion and you just don't feel right, maybe God wants you to take a pause today. Uh, but, but please don't misunderstand me. This is not for perfect people. If this was for perfect people, we would have all the elements put away because nobody would be able to celebrate. So if you're a believer, you're trusting in Christ, do celebrate with us. This is a time for refreshment for our weary souls. Uh, parents, as I always encourage you, if your child's a believer, has fruit consistent with repentance, they should participate with us as well. But don't be in a rush. Don't be in a hurry. Let me pray for the elements. And then we will pass them out as we sing our, our final song. Let's pray. God, we come before you right now. Uh, we thank you that we can remember. That we can remember what Jesus has done on the cross. Uh, that he died a, a death that was due unto us. We thank you for what he's doing right now in our lives. And we thank you what he will continue to do and uh, finally bring to consummation. We pray, uh, Lord, that you would use this uh, to refresh uh, weary souls. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.